And as we prepare to welcome the radio audience this morning, listening live, let us pray. Father, we thank you today for this beautiful day that you've given to us. Thank you for each and every person that's here this morning with their eyes open, their ears open to hear your word. We thank you for everyone that's joining us this morning by the wonderful media of radio. And Lord, we pray for every ear to hear today what you have to say by your spirit. And Father, we thank you today for the gift that you have entrusted to your church. You know exactly what it is we need. And you've given us your word, and you've given us your precious Holy Spirit. And they are enough. And so today, Father, we ask you as we take this word in all sincerity of heart, and we trust you for the Holy Spirit to breathe upon this word and to breathe it into our hearts, that it may become spirit and life to us that we not leave here today with more information and just hearing something we've even heard before, but we leave changed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God deposited in us. For the Word is mighty and it's powerful, more powerful than any two-edged sword, able to discern the difference between the thoughts and intention of the heart. And your Word does not return to you void, but it accomplishes what you sent it to do. And we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Charles, there's an echo up here somewhere, if you can please get rid of it. I only need to hear my voice once. <laughs> Praise God. Well, let's read down through here, and we'll pick up with where we left off last week. Verse 14, later appeared to the eleven as they were at the table, and rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And so then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with sign, accompanying signs, amen, or so be it. What we've been looking at, or begun to look at, is the question of why are we here? It's a legitimate question we should ask ourselves, both individually and as a church. Why are we here on this earth? Why are we here at this church? Why is this church here? Because God is very purposeful. God does everything with a purpose. And we've talked about the fact that if, because God loves us, he will do the loving thing for us. And since this earth and this world is the only place where we can get in trouble once we're saved, why, if he loves us so much, did he leave us here once we were saved? Why didn't he save us and just take, it, take us into glory with him? Well, the obvious answer is he has a purpose for us being here. And as difficult as the time, I'm still hearing that echo up here. As difficult as the times may be, what keeps coming back to me is what Mordecai said to Esther, perhaps we're here for such a time as this. So there's a purpose in why God has us here that's beyond ourselves. And I'm telling you, one of the keys to joy in life is to beginning to look at the purpose of your life beyond yourself. In fact, having a purpose that's not just beyond yourself, but that's God's purpose for you. And we've talked about the fact that when Jesus was... Uh, finished his ministry or finishing his ministry, he took aside the 12 men or the 11 that were left, the group that he had trained so carefully over over three years. And he gave them his last instructions to them. It summed everything up, all the things he'd said to them that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were summed up in these final instructions. He brought everything together. And we just read one of the versions of what it is. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, if you do that, signs will follow you. The miracles will follow you. We want to see the signs and wonders. We want to see the healings. We want to see the miracles. But they're given to us as we carry out the purpose for which they're here and for which we are here. And so we've begun to look at this purpose that Jesus has given to his church and to us individually. And we looked at the word go, which is an action verb. It doesn't mean sit still. It doesn't mean sit in a blue chair. It means go and do something. We talked about the momentum that's behind that word go. Momentum is the tendency of something that's in motion to stay in motion. And actually we learned it gathers strength as it moves. It's also the tendency of something that's not moving to stay not moving. So momentum is what will keep you doing what you're doing now. So if you don't like what you're doing now, you're going to need to change something. And the instructions are to go. Notice he doesn't say come back. He just says go. We're to go into 
That means get involved in, be an intricately part of something. Not of it, but, part, but involved in it. So it doesn't mean just standing on a street, cor- street corner, handing out tracts. It doesn't mean just standing. They're okay to do. It doesn't mean standing on the street corner with some megaphone, which may be okay to do. But most of the time, people just look at you like you're foolish. And just, you know, saying, the, the, you know, we've all seen the cartoons of people walking around in a robe saying the end is near. And, and it, it means go into the world, become involved in it, touch people. Jesus went out, and we'll look at that down the road. Jesus went out into his world, and he touched people. He even went to places that the, his own people thought he shouldn't be going into. He went and sat with the Pharisees. He sat with the sinners. He went out to where the people were that needed him, even though they didn't know they needed him. And the church loves to stay within the church. Why? It's more comfortable. It's always more comfortable to be hanging around people that agree with you. But there's two problems with that. First of all, you don't grow by hanging around with people that are just like you and agree with you. We only grow by getting into uncomfortable situations. You'll only experience the power of God as you step out into situations where His power is needed. So we only grow by getting outside of here. The other thing is we can not possibly fulfill our purpose by just staying inside these walls. And so God is calling us as a church. I believe He's calling more than Faith Christian Center, but I'm only responsible for Faith Christian Center. He's calling us to go out, to go out into our world, whatever your world may be, And we looked at the Greek word for world, it's cosmos, which means systems of this world, philosophy of this world, the way the world does things. So, well, I don't like it. The world's all messed up. That's right. That's why we need to go into it. Our flesh and our religious thinking wants to recoil from it and say, oh, I don't want to get involved with those people. They're wrong. They're off track. That's exactly why we're to go into that world. And we're to preach the word preach doesn't mean stand in front of a, behind a pulpit, although that's part of it, and pound your fist and yell and scream and spit and swat bees and all that stuff. That may be part of it. It means to declare something, and there are many ways to do that. You may not be called to stand behind a pulpit, but preaching involves just declaring, and the most powerful way to declare is the way you live your life in front of people. The most powerful preaching you do is not what you say. It's what, the way you live your life and the way others around you observe you. And believe me, they're watching you. Whether you're, you're family members that think you're crazy, they're watching you. They wonder why you left the church and, you, the church and come here and sit here for two hours. Why would you do that? They're watching you. They're watching you. They're watching you. All right. But then we began to look at this question. All right. What we're looking at now is we're called to go into all the world, and preach. But what is it we're called to go into all the world and preach? The gospel. So what we've been talking about is what is the gospel? And we looked at the Greek word that it comes from, which means good news. So what we've been talking about over the last three or four weeks is what is the good news? And we're, we're taking it out of the context of the Bible. We're taking it out of the context of church. Because somehow when we get into church, we take words that have a basic common meaning and we do funny things with them. We do religious things with them, and then we lose their real meaning out there. See, it's so easy to try to live in two worlds. There's the church world where we come in here, where we use the church vocabulary. I'm blessed. Praise God. God's good. And then we go out into what we consider the real world, and we we use a totally different vocabulary, a totally different way of thinking. So we live in two different worlds. And we don't walk around saying, you know, praising God all the time. We walk around complaining, feeling sorry for ourselves. But we come in here and now we praise God and everything's wonderful. And we live in two different worlds. And you understand your brain knows that? So it learns to dismiss one of them. And guess which one it's going to dismiss? The one you spend the least time in. Jesus, it's called integrity. The word integrity doesn't just mean telling the truth. It means having everything combined together as one in his place, being integral. And we need to have a life that's consistent out there with what it is in here and in here with what it is out there to be an integrity. And that's what people can sense. That's why it's so hard so often to get teenagers involved in church because you can't fool teenagers. They haven't been around long enough to live in two different worlds. They look at what we do out there and what we say in here, and they line them up, and if they don't match up, they don't listen to us. 
and they shouldn't. But the world won't listen to us either. So here's the issue. What means good news to us out there, we need to look at because that's what ought to be good news in here. And here's what I mean by that. Out in the world, we know what good news is when we hear it. If you suddenly got a raise or you got a job and you haven't had one, you thought, you know, your, your doctor was concerned when he gave you the test and he said, I don't know what this is. And now that you get a call to come in and the doctor says, look, we've run every test. There's nothing wrong with you. Or, you know, they don't know how to find something and then you go to a specialist and he says, I know exactly what this is. I treat it all the time. Fill this prescription. Take this for 10 days and it's all going to go away. That's good news. We don't have to get into some theological debate about what good news is. We all recognize good news. What it is make to you may be a little different than it is to me, but it's good. And it's news, which means it's something we haven't heard before. That's what that Greek word gospel means. Good news. So we began to ask ourselves questions, and I, we're talking about it, and we're really in a phase of this teaching which God just wants to get through to us and waken us up to where we are. And then he'll begin to take us where we want us to, what he wants us to go. So often waking up, at least the way God works with me, is to just ask me a question. And when he asks a question, it gets right through to my heart. And you know God doesn't ask questions to, to learn something. Because when you know everything, you don't have anything to learn. He asks questions for our benefit. And so the question that he, he asked me is, if, if, if this gospel really is good news, why don't we tell people about it? Because when you get that good report from the doctor... You tell somebody about it. When you get a raise or, or, or you get a job or, or, or I know you don't pay the lottery, but you won the lottery or something like that happens. Something wonderful happens that everybody recognizes. You can't keep quiet about it. You run and tell somebody. You pick up your phone. You go on Facebook and you put it out there on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter or whatever you are. You know, you get it out there and every, the world instantly knows something good happened to you. Why? Because we know it's good. And instinctively, when we found something good, we want to tell other people about it, whether it's a good restaurant or a good movie or something we've experienced. We want to tell people, why aren't we out there doing the same thing with this? Is it perhaps we don't really recognize how this is good to us? Is it perhaps we have recognized it at one point and have lost touch with it? Or maybe we've never yet experienced the depth of of the good news of what God's done for us. We saw examples where Jesus came and healed Jairus' daughter, raised her from the dead. She was 12 years old and she had died and raises her from the dead and Jesus tells him, don't go tell anybody. Why? Because he had crowd control issues. Don't go tell anybody and what did the first thing they do is they went out and told. They couldn't keep quiet about it. Why? Something good had happened to them. And they couldn't be still about it. And there are a number of cases of that. We didn't look last week, but there's a story over in Acts chapter 4, don't need to turn there, where Peter and John are arrested for, for raising a lame man up by simply speaking the name of Jesus to him. And they're brought in and the Pharisees don't know what to do with them because it's caused a ruckus and they're jealous of the attention that this miracle has gotten. But the problem is they can't deny the miracle because this man every day sat by that gate beautiful and everybody knew that he was lame from his birth and now he leaped up and he was walking around praising God. They knew something had happened and they couldn't deny it but they didn't want to let this loose. So they finally figured out a, a strategy to keep this thing contained and obviously because you and I are here today they couldn't keep it contained. And they just said, whatever you do, you can go out and do your thing, but just don't preach in that name. Just don't do anything in that name. And Peter answers, because they were the authority, and says, whether it's right to obey you or God, you decide. All I know is we cannot help but say what we've seen and heard. We can't help it. They couldn't keep quiet. Why? Because they know what they'd seen. It was so incredible, so amazing, so wonderful, so glorious, they couldn't keep quiet about it. And the question I believe the Spirit of God is asking the church is, how come you're able to keep quiet about it so easily? How come it takes programs and preaching that makes us feel guilty? How come it has to take all of that to get us to go out to tell something that's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened? Perhaps, perhaps, 
we've lost touch with what's good about the gospel. Perhaps we've never truly experienced the depth of it. We looked at a woman last week who came into the Pharisee's house where Jesus was eating, and she couldn't help but wash, but she was crying over his feet. And, and she washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And she brought this very valuable uh, uh, alabaster jar that contained a, a precious ointment. And she anointed him with that. And the Pharisees, we talked about the fact that here you've got Jesus in the room. And on one hand, you've got this woman who's crying and washing her feet with her hair and, and weeping. And on the other hand, you've got the Pharisees who were looking at him and trying to figure out why he can't discern who this woman is. They're both looking at the same Jesus. <clears throat> and each of them look at him through their own eyes of how they see themselves. The Pharisees look at Jesus through the eyes of, hey, we're, we're, we have it all together. We tithe herbs, mint, and cumin. And we do everything we're supposed to do. We're great. We're, 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 we have everything together. We obey the law. So they looked at themselves basically as we have no need, kind of like the Laodicean church. And then you've got this woman who looks at this same son of God and realizing her desperate need. She knows she's a sinner, whether she was a prostitute. We don't know what her background is, but she knows that her life was a wreck and she knew it. And she saw him as the son of God come with mercy. They both looked at the same Savior, but their response to him was not based on how they saw him. Their response to him was based on what they thought of themselves. The Pharisees were filled with what the Bible calls self-righteousness. They were fine, they were righteous in their own eyes. The woman was filled with a, a, a holy reverence for who he was because she had a holy awareness of who she was as a sinner. And, and it ends with this statement. Jesus said, I came in here, and she, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't provide a, a washing for my feet. You didn't anoint my head. And this woman, since she's come in, has not ceased to do either of those. Tells a little story about a man who was a creditor, a banker, and he loaned money to two different debtors. One borrowed 500 denarii, the other 50. And they both went bankrupt, and neither could pay it back. And he forgave them both, and he said... Which one do you think loved him more? And they said, he who had been forgiven of more. And that's when he said, I've come in here. You didn't do anything for me. This woman's not ceased to worship me. And then he leaves this principle. He who's been forgiven of little loves little. He who's been forgiven of much loves much. Now the reality is these Pharisees were just as much a sinner as she was. The difference is they were blind to it. They were blind to it. So they could not receive the good news of why Jesus was there because they didn't see they needed him. This woman was worshiping him and, and honoring him and loving him because she knew how desperately that good news was like, was like cold, cool water to someone that's been in the desert for days. It was a satisfaction of that deep inner need she had to be loved and forgiven and accepted. So it's not in who Jesus is, it's in who we see ourselves that determines how we receive him and to what degree we receive the good news. All right. Now let's go to Romans chapter 1. So we're looked at, we're, all just, we're just asking questions now because we're trying to have the Holy Spirit locate where we really are. God knows we need to see, just like the Pharisees and this woman. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at another aspect of this. Another question about the gospel. Most of the letters that Paul wrote to churches are written to churches that he had created, that he, he founded. And so they're written to address issues in those churches. But this is written to the churches at Rome. Paul had never been there. 
So he didn't found these churches, and he's writing this letter in anticipation of coming to them. And so what he's doing is basically says in here, I've come because I want to impart something to you, and I want to impart the gospel to you. So he prepares them ahead of time by writing this letter to them, and Romans is essentially the best treatise we have on the gospel itself. So it's going to begin by this issue that we're talking about. Let's pick up here in Romans 1. Uh, verse 14. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in, in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now he's going to go on, and we may talk about this later on. He's going to go on and, and take these two verses and, 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 and give detail about that. But we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the starting point is to ask us, are we ashamed of it? Don't answer, just ask yourself. Are we ashamed of it? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why was he not ashamed? Because it is the power of God for salvation. And the question I felt the Lord asking me, not only are you ashamed of it, but the reason he wasn't ashamed of it, because he saw in the gospel God's power. He saw in the gospel God's power. I think one of the reasons we get discouraged and maybe even ashamed is because we've tried sharing it before and it just doesn't seem to work. Or we've shared it before maybe with family members and I've shared with you my testimony of trying to beat my brother-in-law over the head with it. Um, and that obviously didn't work. Um, but to try to share it and people just reject you. They, they don't receive it. Maybe family members just dismiss you. Maybe, you know, people at work just think you're crazy. And so after a while, you just said, this is not worth it. You just kind of clam up and go about your business, just hoping maybe they'll recognize something in you. But the gospel, Paul says, the gospel, the apostle Paul says, is the power of God. It's not weak. It's not... It's not, it's not flimsy. It's not fragile. It's not something that's easily tramped upon. It's the power of God. Now, Wednesday night, this last Wednesday night, we talked a little bit about this word power. There are several words in the, in the English translations that come in English as power. And, but the Greek word behind this one is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. And it means the inherent ability of the one who has it. So dynamite, for instance, has an inherent ability to destroy and explode. Nitroglycerin, that little vial of stuff that, you know, you see in movies, you better not be, better be careful with it. Why? Because you respect it because you understand that in this vial of nitroglycerin, if you don't take good care of it, if you, somebody comes up and bumps against you, this thing's going to go off. There's power in it. So there's a reverence for it. There's a taking care of it. There's an awareness of it that you have it. I guarantee you, if we handed each of you a little vial of nitroglycerin when you came in, you'd all be very conscious that you have it. It's the power of God. Think about that. The power of God. World War II was basically ended, at least the war in the Pacific was ended because there were two atomic bombs that were set off. And the reason that they ended the war was because it communicated the ultimate, what was considered the ultimate military power that the United States has developed. And it was a warning that if you don't surrender, we're going to exercise this power on more cities. And it worked. It unleashed the power of the atom. Well, I'm not a physicist. By, I'm not even the beginning of a physicist. But my understanding is the atomic weapons we have now are so far beyond the power of that atomic bomb that was dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima back in 1945. The power of the atom. 
but where did the atom come from? Where did the power that's in the atom come from? Wednesday night, we just took a little bit of time and went back and we looked over in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith we understand that the worlds were formed by the word of God. Think about that. Everything that exists in the universe, the Big Bang. Well, we know who the ba- where the bang came from. God said. Hebrews 4 lets us know, I mean, Romans 4, around verse 18 or 19, lets us know that God, who can raise the dead, also calls things into existence that never existed before. This entire universe was created, and get this, God didn't have to jump up and down and work up a sweat and yell and scream. He just said, let there be. And there was absolute power to create something out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3 says, Therefore we now understand that everything that is seen was not made out of something that was visible. In other words, when God created the universe, he didn't go to Lowe's or Home Depot and have the angels get all the supplies like we had to do here. For this construction, the first step of it was we had piles of plywood, we had piles of ceiling tile, we had piles of things, because they are making something out of this, but they're just taking materials that have already been made and bringing them here to relocate them and change their shape and change their color. And that's all man can do. We cannot make anything. We can take things God has made and reconstitute them, reform them, change their chemical composition, but we don't create the chemicals that change the composition. Only God takes nothing and makes something of it. But then Hebrews 1.3 says, and all of this is still held together by the word of that power. So the power that's holding the universe together, the power that's causing the atoms to still function and the, or rather, rotate around the molecule, or molecules, whatever it is, the pieces that are working, the neutrons around the, whatever it is, they're moving. What's holding them all together is still the power of that initial word that said, let there be. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. The power of God. Not the power of the church. Not the power of FCC. Not my power. God's power is in the gospel. Handle with care. In your lap is something infinitely more powerful than dynamite. In your lap is something infinitely more powerful than an atomic bomb or a hydrogen bomb or whatever other bomb they've got. Because I'll tell you what it's destroyed. It hasn't destroyed cities. It's destroyed the power of sin. It's destroyed the power of death. It's destroyed the ultimate power of the enemy. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, 1 John says, that he would destroy the works of the evil one. He did that over 2,000 years ago. But the question that we're asking here is if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, where's that power in my life? Let's talk about salvation. Because the word salvation is the Greek word soterio, which doesn't mean just not going to hell and getting into heaven. I mean, if that's all it meant, that's wonderful. But the word means wholeness. It means soundness. It means healing. It means restoration of everything that's wrong. It means deliverance, safety, preservation. In essence, it's deliverance from every result of the fall of man. And all that sin brought in with it. It's deliverance from everything the devil's done. I was so excited we started singing tonight. Because we're talking about breaking every chain. That's what the gospel did. Salvation means the breaking of every chain, every depression, every habit, 
everything that debilitates, everything that fear, all the things that restrict us, harm us, destroy us, keep us from doing what we're here to do, all the things that torment us. The gospel is the power of God to save you and deliver you from every work of the enemy. The power of God. Think about that. And we've come up with other alternatives, and I'm not diminishing any of them. We have psychology, and we have drugs, and, and you know, if, unless you're walking in the fullness of this, you may need those things, but they're not God's best. And I'm not telling you to stop taking your medicine. I'm not telling you to stop going to see your psychologist. I'm just telling you, start meditating on this, and you may come to the place where you don't need them. It's the power of God. We really don't under, we don't, we've not, this is one of those things that's got to get down in us. Just like the good, we got, it's got to get down in us. God's power. All the power of the universe is not in the Avengers. I mean, those kind of movies are popular. Why? Because there's something in human beings that say we need some power, some force that's bigger than we are because we realize we can't handle this. So we need something, some supernatural power that's going to come down. It's going to save us from all the enemies. He has come! The Avengers here! The power of God. The power of God is not just up in heaven. The power of God, it says in Ephesians 1, at the end, the power of God is displayed. Paul prays that this God would open the eyes of our understanding that we would see three things in there. And the last is the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead that's been displayed towards us. The power of God to deliver you from every bondage of fear. Can you imagine what your life would be like if there were just fear couldn't touch you? You'd just laugh at it? Satan knows devices to debilitate us, the church. And fear is the major weapon. Guilt. When it comes to your children, disciplining your children, raising your children, then once you've done that, praying for them, Satan keeps bombarding, well, you didn't do everything right. If you did everything right, they wouldn't be where they are. Well, I got an answer for you. God's first child, Adam, didn't do everything right. Is it because his father wasn't good enough? But Satan uses that guilt, shame, so that we won't come in here and openly praise God and worship him. Shame and guilt that robs us of confidence when we come before him to pray. All those things are devices of the devil to rob the church of the power that the devil knows the church has. Because he's scared that if we discover it, he's in trouble. His plans are in trouble. Intimidation. You're not enough. You've never done anything right. You don't have enough education. You're not strong enough. You're not wise enough. You're too old. You're not old enough. All of those things are weapons of intimidation of Satan to get us staying sitting in our blue chairs. I'm not enough. That's right. You're not. Neither am I. Neither was Moses. Neither was Abraham. Neither was Isaac. Neither was King David. Neither was everyone that's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 that did, did mighty things for God. But they learned to flow in the power of God. They learned to flow in the power of God.
It's the power of God to deliver you. The power of God to deliver you. I'm not talking about the world yet. It's only good news to them when it's been good news to us. If we're still wrapped up in bondage of fear to, to some habit that's got a hold of your flesh, something you don't want anymore, whether it's smoking, alcohol, pornography, whatever it may be. You don't want it. If you're born again inside of you, you don't want it. But you don't know how to get free. The gospel, the good news, is God's given us the power for you to be free. You experience that power that sets you free. That's good news. The power of God. Maybe why we're ashamed of it. It's because we really haven't experienced the power of God. I'm experiencing the heat of God. (laughs) Thank you. Salvation. The cross. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13. I could have quoted it to you, but I want you to see it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We sang about breaking every curse. Christ has redeemed you from it, bought you back, paid with his own precious, sinless blood to redeem you from every curse of breaking the law. The law. The breaking of the law is disobedience. Every sin that you've ever committed was a breach of the law. And Christ has redeemed us from the consequences of that. The curse that comes from our sin. He redeemed it with his own blood. He redeemed it with the blood of the covenant. That's why you have a right to plead the blood. That's something the old Pentecostals used to do. Plead the blood. Plead the blood. Plead the blood. What's that mean? It means calling on the blood of a covenant. The blood that paid for it. Satan's scared of the blood. He's threatened by the blood. He's threatened by the blood. Because it was the blood that defeated him. The blood that trapped him. The blood that defeated him. The blood that broke his power. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That includes sickness and disease. You ought to go to Deuteronomy 28, starting around verse 16. It begins to list the things that are included in the curse. And Christ has redeemed you from every one of those things. Has redeemed you. Not when you get to heaven. Has redeemed you. Has redeemed you. Hebrews chapter 2 says, He's delivered us from the fear of death. Romans tells us that death has no sting anymore. He's broken the power of the fear of death. Delivered us. Wow. All right, pastor, that's great news. But how come I'm not experiencing it? See, it's not sitting in here getting charged up about it because when we go out those doors, the issues of life will hit us right in the face. Some of you go out there and you get a phone call or a text message and you'll lost Everything you heard in here, because your mind will be, oh my gosh, my kids, what are they going to do? What am I going to do? We're getting back into the old things again. It's not what you hear in here. It's what becomes real to you in here. So, all right, how do we get that? Why are we not experiencing the fullness of that deliverance in our lives? Well, there's a reason for it. Hosea 4.6 says, My people perish for a lack of knowledge. The first reason we don't walk in this is because we don't know it's ours. We think that that's in the sweet by and by. When we all get to heaven, what a glorious day that will be. It will. But that doesn't help us in this rotten here and now. How do we deal with it here and now? Because this power of God under salvation is here. The ultimate fulfillment of it is when we get to heaven. 
But the power of it is here. Jesus walked here exhibiting it. Fear didn't grip him. Nothing controlled him. Nothing stopped him from accomplishing what he was here to do. And all the power of hell was sent here to stop him, and it couldn't stop him. All the power of hell was, you said, well, that's Jesus. But all the power of hell was sent to stop the apostle Paul, and it couldn't stop him. And there are just two. There are many more that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Because they learned the secret of the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. (laughs) It's as if we think we're walking around with a water pistol. And the devil's out there with his 356 Magnum or whatever it is, 357. And we got a water pistol, and so we're going to try to, we're ashamed of it. So we're going to keep it in our pocket, and we're going to try to out-talk him. I had this image one time. I ta- taught it this way. It's as if, you know, these old, old uh, I don't know where I'm going this day, but where we are. These old Western showdowns on Main Street, you know, high noon and all that stuff. You know, and you got, that's why I like having this. I can do this better. You know, it's like we're in this showdown with the devil, and he's got his pistol. His, he's got his, you know, 357 Magnum. Is that what it is? And he's aiming it at us, and we're scared of that thing. We think we got a water pistol. So we're ashamed. This is, we say we're not ashamed of the gospel. Because the reason we're ashamed of it is we don't know the power that's in it. And first of all, I can't reach him with this water pistol. And if I can, I'm just going to make him wet, which is going to get him angry, so I better keep it in my pocket. So I better not tell anybody, because the devil might get angry at me. He's already angry at you. I'm sorry, some of you don't. Remember Clint Eastwood movies? This famous line, what is it? Make my day. <laughs> Give me an opportunity. But see, we're not an, this is not an equal fight. We're not on the other end of Main Street with a water pistol or even an equal 357 Magnum. We're sitting in the latest tank with a barrel of that thing aimed at him. Scared of him. In the tank, you're protected. Psalm 91. That tank has the ability to blow. Now, you can't destroy the devil. That's not your preface. But you can destroy the works of the devil in your life. If you became more aware of the gospel in your life, if you began to see more of the results of the gospel in your life, you would begin to have more confidence to share the gospel with others. So why? Why is it not real? Well, the first is, Hosea tells us, we perish for a lack of knowledge. We don't know what's ours. We either think, I know it's in the Bible, but it's in the sweet by and by, or I don't believe it's really mine. Because notice, back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So in order for this power to save you and deliver you, you have to believe it. Not just that it exists, but you have to believe that it is yours and it works. You've got to believe in what God has done for you. So we're going to begin to take a look at what this salvation is that God has done for us. And again, the whole purpose of this is I'm not teaching you yet how to share the gospel. We're being motivated in our hearts by the, to be moved by the good news of the gospel. Because otherwise it becomes a doctrine we teach people. And that doesn't move them. It doesn't change them. All right. So what is, this, what is the gospel? What has he done for us? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 1 ends by what we talked about a little earlier. Paul's prayer is that God would open our eyes, open their eyes, and therefore our eyes, that we would see 
understand who he is and see what he's done for us and that we would give a revelation of the power of the resurrection when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead, but that power that's been displayed towards us. Now, the power of the resurrection that raised Christ from the dead, first of all, that power was exerted to raise him from the dead. And we talked about that Wednesday night. The Spirit of God went into Hades, the place of the death, and in the place of death, took a dead man and made him alive. Only God can do that. And having done that, we begin chapter 2. And he, and you he made alive who were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. And then he goes over in verse 4. So we were dead in our sins. That has two aspects to it. We were dead, first of all, because if we died in those sins, we were going to be eternally dead, eternally separated from God. But while we're still on this earth, until we receive Christ, we were still separated from God because spiritual death is being separated from the source of spiritual life. That's God. doesn't mean you don't exist because hell is full of people that still exist. But they're spiritually dead because they're separated from life himself. So spiritual death is not that you cease existing. You're disconnected from the source of life itself. And until we came to Christ, we were dead in our sins. Our sin in our nature kept us separated from God, who is a holy God. Well, look at verse 4. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, because motivated, driven by His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. If you're in Christ, that's where you're sitting. Not your body's sitting in a blue chair, but spiritually you are seated in Christ. Now, where is Christ seated? The Father is sitting on the throne because He's the ultimate authority. Christ, the Bible tells us, is seated at His right hand. The right hand position next to a king was the position of authority. And you and I are seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. That's why Jesus says, whatever you ask Him in my name, He'll do it for you. We were learning Wednesday night, the church has been given His authority. We've been raised from the dead. The power of God. We've been raised up and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him to be holy and without blame. So you stand before God today spiritually, holy and without blame in Christ, because you're in Christ. So although you may have memory of things you've done wrong, Though if you're in sin right now, you've got to repent of it and get back under that righteousness. You can because of that blood. So that blood washed away your guilt, washed away your sin in His blood. In love, it says, goes on to say, having been predestined to adoption as sons, let me boil it down this way. In the time we have left, I don't want to get... If you look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see this. Here's what God did, because there's an order to this. He sent His Son to come to this earth. And among other things, His main purpose was to die on that cross. And on that cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He took your sin. In fact, He said He took sin. And that sin was placed on Him. It was imputed to Him. And then the wrath of God was poured out on that sin on His sinless Son. 
That was to pay for the sin because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So God took His sinless Son, His beloved Son, put Him on that cruel cross, put sin on Him, and God poured His wrath out for your sin and my sin and the sin of the world on His Son that day. He died on that cross with that sin. He was dragged into Hades just as you and I would have been with that sin. But when the price was fully paid, the Spirit of God came into that place of death and made Him alive again. And that doesn't say it in the Bible, but I believe Satan objected. and says, how come He can come alive in the place of death I have him legally here because he died in sin. But the technicality was none of that sin was his. So he could legally become alive and leave that place. And guess what he left there? Your sin and my sin. Was raised from the dead. God did that to pay for your sin. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So he took your sin, and then he could legally give you Jesus' righteousness. This is what it means in verse 17 of Romans 1, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and that's what we'll be talking about. He gave to you his righteousness. I want this to sink in. He didn't make you righteous. He gave to you His righteousness. If I took this Bible that I love and I've written notes in, I'm not doing it. And I said, Ron, I'm giving this to you. I didn't just give him a Bible. I gave him my Bible which has my personality in it because the things that matter to me I've made notes on. I've underlined the things that are important to me. Your Bible may have other things underlined. So I gave to him my Bible. Jesus, God gave to us his righteousness. Now why did he do all that? Why did he make you holy and without blame before him? All of that was to qualify us and prepare us for the real thing that God wanted to do above everything else. He predestined us that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. Romans 8 says it this way. And whom he called, has he called you? You're here because he called you. Whom he called, he justified, made righteous. Whom he justified, he glorified. Put his nature in. He did that to qualify us so we could be adopted as his sons and daughters, holy and righteous as he is. In order to do that, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So God took your old nature, which is what caused you all the trouble. Your flesh is the source, is the avenue of sin, but your nature is what loves it. God took your old nature out. Ezekiel says he took that heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh. That's one that can feel, that's alive. Stones aren't alive, but flesh is alive. And then he said, I took my spirit and put my spirit in them. That's how you became born again. You became born again the same way you became born the first time. The first birth was the birth of your body. Your parents did what they needed to do, and out of that was was created the initial cells that grew into who you are today. That's your body. And that had the nature of your parents. It's not shocking for me to look in a mirror as I get older and I look like my father when he was about this age. That's not shocking. But if I looked in the mirror and saw somebody completely different, I start to wonder. 
when you're born again, which also means from above, God does in your spirit man what he did originally in that first man in the garden. He breathed his breath of life into you. And you become a living spirit unto him, alive unto him, a child of God <clears throat> with his nature. Now you have the ability to love him, the ability to serve him, the ability to do what's right, the desire to do what's right. But if you read the, Romans 7, starting in verse 14, you find out that you still don't have the strength to do it. You're caught in this dilemma that Paul found himself in. I want to do what's right, but the very good I want to do, I don't do, and the very things I don't want to do are the very things I go right out that door and do. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever felt that way? Of course you have. It's interesting because in those verses, I appears, I don't remember, seven or eight times, but the Spirit of God appears none. He ends chapter 7 by saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it ends with saying, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. Now chapter 8, which is a continuation of the same idea, says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because what the law could not do because of the weakness of our flesh, God did. Not will do when we get to heaven. God did. <clears throat> Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemns our sin in his flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not trusting in our flesh but trusting in the Spirit. So the power to live a changed life is the Spirit of God, His Spirit that He's breathed in us. So we have God's nature. <clears throat> We're new creatures in Christ. We're God's children, His beloved Loved children for whom he paid the dearest possible price. We're loved. We're cherished. We're children of God. We have God's own power, his spirit by which he created the universe living inside of us. And we're cowering in fear and shame of this good news because we haven't truly believed it and experienced it in our lives. He paid for our sins, gave us his righteousness, qualified us to be sons and daughters, delivered us from shame and guilt of our failure, destroyed the power of death and the fear of it, gave us a hope and inheritance to look forward to, and put his spirit in us to empower us. What more could he do? So the issue is not what God's done, but we've not fully believed it. So what do we do? What's our side of this? It's to believe it. Well, how do we believe it? Because God's given it to us in here is to spend the time in here and meditate on it. Meditate on it. I'm finding that I don't read as many scriptures as I used to. I read fewer scriptures more slowly. And I meditate on them and meditate on them, and talk to myself. The reason those verses I've given you off the top of my head is not because I can, I don't, I don't know how to memorize things, but when I meditate on them over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over again, they begin to come part of me, and at some point, you ever, you put a coin into a, they use credit cards now, but a, po a coin into a vending machine, and you hear it goes, there's a point where that coin drops down in, and you know it made it, so you're going to get your Twinkie bar out, and suddenly what happens as you meditate on it, and the reality of this begins to drop down inside of you. And boy, when it does, you know it. Because you begin to walk differently. You begin to talk differently. You begin to, 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 you begin to, to, begin to sense the power of God displayed towards you. Not just towards you, in you. It's in you. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is dwelling in you and me this morning. Sitting there, waiting to give us boldness and confidence to go into all the world and to declare this gracious gospel. Now let me ask you a question and we'll close with another question. 
Do you know anybody in your life or where you work that's bound up by something? Sickness and disease, fear, drugs, pornography. I'm not even talking about you. Are there people you know that need to get set free? The power, the power to do that is in the gospel that's in you. But we've got to begin to experience it for ourselves. So we're looking at this not so much yet of what to go out and do, but to begin to examine ourselves and find out where we really are. Not to condemn us, because God already knows where we are, but to examine where we are so that we're not content with where we are, because it's only in recognizing where we are that we're open for God to speak to us to begin to change us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your wonderful grace and mercy in our lives. And we pray, Lord, along with the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see, that we would see in our inner man, that we would begin to experience what you've done for us. Not just the glory and inheritance that we have, but the exceeding power that you displayed towards us in the gospel. Father, there are many people here this morning, all of us to some degree, that are still living in bondage to fear or some kind of habit or some weapon of Satan that has a hold of our lives. And we'll begin to step out. And as we start to get there, it's like a leash that he pulls back. And that fear or that habit raises up again. And we're back in bondage to it again. Father, we've read in your word today that the gospel of Jesus Christ is your power to deliver us from that. And so we call upon that power today to begin to work in our lives, creating us a hope that we don't have to live with this the rest of our life, creating us a hope that we don't have to stay bound up by this the rest of our life. Hear the inner cry of our heart, God, and open our eyes to the power of the gospel. And we pray that as we continue to walk this out, that you will continue to direct our steps in Jesus' name.